Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Don't forget to try doing so on the NPR One app. And another podcast you might like is Fresh Air. Check out a recent episode they did that takes an in-depth look at the Trump Foundation's finances. It features an interview with reporter David Farenthold. He used Twitter to launch a nationwide scavenger hunt to find Trump Foundation assets. Find these and other interviews on the Fresh Air podcast on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to talk about President Trump's pick for Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, 49-year-old Federal Appeals Court Judge Neil Gorsuch. Standing here in a house of history and acutely aware of my own imperfections, I pledge that if I am confirmed, I will do all my powers permit to be a faithful servant of the Constitution and laws of this great country. Judge Gorsuch at the White House last night, and we're going to talk about Gorsuch and what effect he'll have on the court if confirmed. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Nina Totenberg, and I cover the Supreme Court and other stuff. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Nina Totenberg. Hey, Nina. <laughs> you know, we had to get a new president, get a new new nominee, but we finally got you back on the podcast. I suspect I'm going to be here a lot. And we look forward to it. So for those who don't know, Nina is, what are you? You are our SCOTUS guru. I'm the dean of the Supreme Court Press Corps. And you know what that means? What? It means I'm the oldest. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it may be also the best. Oh, okay. And I'm the best. Listen, I want to talk about what happened last night. Okay. Because it struck me that there were so many ironies for those of us who've been following this for months through the campaign. So we have this big TV moment. It's in prime the time. East, it's prime time. It's in the East Room. There are leaks that it's probably Gorsuch, but nobody can really confirm it. And out comes President Donald Trump all by himself. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. So we still don't know who it is for sure. <laughs> and then he introduces his nominee. By nominating. Judge Neil Gorsuch sneaks out of the door also, and it's Neil Gorsuch. And I would like to ask Judge Gorsuch and his wonderful wife, Louise, to please step forward. And the president is sitting here saying, are you surprised? Are you surprised? So was that a surprise? Was it? But this was what I would call the closest that Donald Trump's going to get to his apprentice moment in the first month of his presidency. (laughs) And he played it for all it was worth. Okay, so let's let's pause. Let's talk about who this guy is. I guess he has some Ivy League credentials. He has Ivy League credentials. He is really regarded as as a cerebral, fine, very conservative judge from Colorado, from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's the son of Ann Gorsuch, who was a famous bomb thrower as head of the EPA during the Reagan administration. He has incredible Ivy League credentials, even a doctor of philosophy from Oxford to sort of put icing on the cake. He was a top official in a Republican Justice Department, practiced corporate law, and then was nominated in 2006 to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, where he has sat ever since as a distinguished uh, federal appeals court judge. He's only 49 years old. He got that job when he was 39. How is that? I'm feeling really inadequate all of a sudden. How did he have time for all that? He studied (laughs) for it between exams at Oxford. Other judges around the country know who he is because of his fine writing ability. He has a real flair. People compare him to Scalia, but he doesn't have the sharpness of tone, the sort of the occasional nasty twist the knife in, which 
was Scalia could do par excellence better than any other human being I've ever known. I really lusted after the ability to do it the way he did it. But this guy doesn't do that. He it's But it is colorful. It's colorful. Writing. He has real flair and great clarity. One thing I think we also have to step back and think about in the climate of this nomination is that we have to remember Merrick Garland, right? How do we talk about this nomination mm-hmm. without talking about Merrick Garland? And the thing that I noticed tonight in the immediate reaction from a lot of Democrats is that their statements had the name Merrick Garland in it more than it had Neil Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is a vac- seat that sat vacant for about a year. I believe Antonin Scalia died last February. So it's we're coming up on almost a year of a vacant seat and that President Obama had nominated Merrick Garland and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell made the decision, almost single-handedly made the decision. And right away. And immediately within, within that hours. they were going to block any and all consideration of President Obama's nominee under the reasoning that it was not fair in the thick of a presidential campaign to allow him this nomination and that there needed to be an election to decide the the next president should get to decide this. This has obviously been a hugely contested and fought principle, especially when you leave a vacancy on a court for this long. So just in this climate, Democrats start this nomination fight really angry. So with that as background, we should listen to what um, Sean Spicer, the White House spokesman, said about what their criteria are for that they're telling the Senate that it should do. And it, it, it might get the chutzpah award in terms of what Sue just said. The default is that if you're qualified uh, for the position, then you should be confirmed, not the other way around. And I think that most Democrats realize that at some point, uh, that is a that it, having a court that is not fully operational is not the way to is not the political fight to have. You know, you have to wonder if Sean Spicer's ever heard of Merrick Garland <laughs> or where he might have spent the year 2016. Uh, we know better. We know better. He knows yeah. all about Merrick Garland. We know where he spent 2016. And I think the strategy here on the part of Republicans is just don't cop to it. We don't remember all that. Just blow right on by it and say things like, hey, you know, the first guy that Gorsuch clerked for was Byron Wizzer White, whom he noted led the NFL in rushing. That's why they called him Wizzer. He was very fast, who was a relatively conservative member of the Warren court, but appointed by John F. Kennedy the liberal icon president who respected Byron White. So we're going to hear a lot of that sort of thing invoked, that in the old days we didn't worry about all this. Where did all this partisanship suddenly come from? As though the Merrick Garland incident never took place. Mitch McConnell took a huge risk, an enormous gamble, in playing his cards as hard as he did last year, but he got away with it, and he got away with it big time. And the Republicans got a lot more votes out of the Supreme Court choice than the Democrats did. But it's not like... The Democrats can now say, well, you know, I think that the next president should be able to decide. <laughs> Not for their no. hardcore base, no. No, and, and their hardcore base is pretty mad at the moment. The truth of the matter here is that the Democrats have relatively little power. They still have the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, not lower court nominees. But the Republicans, if it goes too long and becomes too impossible and they get too frustrated, they'll just get rid of it. Just the way the Democrats got rid of the filibuster rule for lower court judges. Sue, where does that stand? You know, Mitch McConnell does not want to change the Senate rules. So I think when they call it the nuclear option, when it comes to Supreme Court justices, it's a fair way to describe it in terms of what Mm -hmm. it would do to the Senate and to the relationships there. 
We do have at least one Senate Democrat, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, has already said he announced yesterday he was going to filibuster the nomination and he was a no. So we always knew from the beginning that this nominee was going to need 60 votes. Here's the math. Senate Republicans have 52 votes right now. Uh, I think it's a assuming nothing crazy happens in the confirmation process. By every measure, he Neil Gorsuch is a qualified a jurist. And initially, the wave of Republican support has been unanimous, that, that he's been praised, that he's an outstanding choice, that he's in the mold of Antonin Scalia. Conservative groups have praised him. Uh, and the question now is, do you have eight Democrats that are going to allow the Senate to vote on it, not to vote for Gorsuch? And this is, I know, I know when you start talking Senate process. Yeah. <laughs> Eyes can glaze. I think mine just did. But I'm there, sorry. <laughs> but this is important. And I think because people are going to be so focused on this nomination fight and the talk of 60 votes, it's an important distinction to understand is that what Republicans need is eight Senate Democrats to agree with them that Neil Gorsuch should get an up or down vote, that you need 60 votes to vote on the nomination. So you need eight Democrats to let you have that argument, and then you only need 51 votes to actually approve the nomination itself. And let's remember that there are 10 Democrats who are running for re-election in 2018 in states that were carried by Donald Donald Trump. Trump. And you have other senators like Angus King, who's an independent from Maine, who is not a hardcore partisan and already put out a statement tonight saying, I will give him a fair airing and a fair vetting and I look forward to this process. And that sounds like a a lean yes, (laughs) if you can speak Senate. I don't know. That's what they always say. (laughs) But King is a King is a good example of a Democrat. But you can also split the difference here if you're one of those Democrats. You can vote to end debate and then vote against Neil Gorsuch if you want to. Exactly. So you, you, the, you, there is an out for you where you can sort of appease all of your bases. On the other hand, this is a little bit like anything can happen in a ball game. And I am always very hesitant to promise anybody what's going to happen in a Supreme Court confirmation battle. The groups are going to up the ante. Uh, just the Judicial Crisis Network, which is one of the conservative groups, said it's going to be spending $10 million hmm. in support of uh, the Gorsuch nomination. And I'm sure that there are plenty of liberal groups who will be spent. They won't spend as much money because they just don't have it. But the conservative groups, I just have the sense that for conservatives have always fought these battles harder and better and longer and tougher. And this is the Scalia seat. And you have to give them their not just emotional attachment or sentimental attachment to it, but this is the linchpin of the conservative majority. So they regard this as almost biblically theirs. And the Democrats, on the other hand, may feel very much that way if we see a vacancy coming from the liberal bloc. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Stephen Breyer were to retire, the Democrats might fight like lions for that. They'll fight like lions, whoever it is, if there's one more. Let's just get to what you were saying, Ron, which is how this seat affects the balance of power, if you will, on the court. Before the death of Justice Antonin Scalia last year, there were nine justices, which is the normal number. Um, Four were viewed as the liberal wing. Four were viewed as the conservative wing. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy was viewed as, you know, somewhere in the middle. So, This is a conservative seat that is now open. It's not only a conservative seat. It really is a conservative court in most cases. But in two of the very biggest ones of recent years, but not the third, 
in two of the very big biggest ones, same-sex marriage and the recent attempt to limit the access uh, to abortion clinics from Texas, Anthony Kennedy was the pivotal vote siding with the liberal bloc, and it was five to three in the abortion case and five four when Scalia was still there in the same-sex marriage case. In fact, same-sex marriage and gay rights will probably be Anthony Kennedy's biggest legacy. He's written all of the decisions in the gay rights area. However, if you look at the other area, which is voting rights, he was the fifth vote to strike down the Voting Rights Act, you know, the, the key provision of the Voting Rights Act, the preclearance provision. So, and in many, many other cases, certainly the majority of cases, he votes with the conservative bloc. So, but if he goes, that degree of uncertainty is gone. There'll be another person in the mold of Antonin Scalia and probably Neil Gorsuch. And, you know, this is a very conservative court. But if there's no uncertainty in that Kennedy seat, it's six to three and possibly seven to two conservative liberal. You know, the Republican Party in general and their base voters have taken Supreme Court vacancies and Supreme Court fights much more seriously than the Democratic Party and Democratic voters have. And it's been a much more motivating factor in recent elections, as it was in 2016 with Donald Trump. And as he said, uh, Gorsuch was on a list, an updated list of the justices that he put out during the campaign to signal to evangelical voters and Christian voters that he was going to make good on his promise to put someone in the mold of Scalia. And a lot of the initial reaction tonight, too, was Donald Trump made good on a campaign promise that he followed through. And I am I'm curious to see as this goes forward, because we're seeing a galvanization on the left right now is do Democrats and does the Democratic base try to match conservatives and the conservative base on this issue of the court, which has just not been as significant as a rallying point for Democratic voters? Well, I mean, certainly in the in the 2016 election, the fact that Donald Trump had this list was very persuasive to some evangelical voters who were rather uneasy with him. And how many Democratic voters did you meet that said they were going to vote because they were angry about Merrick Garland? Not as many as conservative <laughs> no. voters who were going to who were going to vote for Trump because singularly because of his Supreme Court pick. And how many Democratic voters did you meet who said they were voting for Hillary Clinton despite whatever reservations they might have because it was so important to appoint someone like Merrick Garland or someone even more liberal than Merrick Garland to take control, really, of yeah. the Supreme Court? Not many. I don't recall that being a salient issue. I mean, I did hear from some people who would mention abortion rights, but of they often didn't take the next step and talk about the Supreme Court, whereas it was a motivating factor. That's right. It was part of an issue area. It was part of a general orientation, but they did not translate it in the same sharp way. Well, as long as the court remains as it is now, with an addition of a con one conservative replacing Scalia, Roe versus Wade, I think, is basically safe. One more appointment, it's no longer safe. Well, and it wouldn't just be Roe that is no. on on the block if another more liberal justice were to no, leave. I everything mean, from all kinds of voting rights issues to consumer rights to environmental questions to uh, access to the, the ability to get into court. All kinds of things would be far different if the court's makeup were to change yet again and become yet more conservative. It's, I always tell people it's interesting to note that Justice John Paul Stevens, who was considered a sort of centrist conservative when he was named to the court by President Ford, 
ended up, at the time he retired, being called the most liberal member of the court. And it wasn't because he had changed dramatically. It was because the court had changed dramatically. And what had once been the center of sort of center-right had become the left. Okay, Nina, why Gorsuch? What What is it about him? You know, there was this list of 21. He was on the list, though he wasn't on the shorter list that came out first. He, he was only mm-hmm. on the second list. What What about him? Well, people like him. He's young. He's only 49. He's going to be around for a long time, not 50 years, which uh, is what the president said last night, but a long time. And you don't know life expectancy. You <laughs> wouldn't be 99. We can all hope to live that long. Okay, but, I, I, but I think a lot of the folks on the right who helped develop those lists thought to themselves, look, he clerked partially for Anthony Kennedy. We want Kennedy to quit. We want to replace him with somebody who's a truer conservative, in our view. And he has a relationship with Kennedy from his clerkship, and he's very smart and very principled, and he'll be able to at least pull Kennedy back over the line to more conservative positions, and at best, let Kennedy feel, look, the court is in good hands. I can quit now. I'm 80. I've done my bit. I can leave. I've seen Gorsuch described as an originalist. Um, Can you just explain what that means, where he fits in, you know, in the range of originalists? (laughs) I think it's fair to say that he is much like Scalia in his view of how to interpret the Constitution. He says you should look backward at what was meant either by the people who uh, by the people who wrote the document Yes, I think it's fair to say he's made a study of being as much like Scalia as he possibly can, intellectually and as a writer, and in terms of being something of a rock. I also suspect, because Donald Trump has so often referred to central casting and people looking just right, that this tall, somewhat Teutonic-looking perfection of a 49-year-old man, uh, you know, appealed. Not that the other candidates were not also good-looking persons of both genders, but that this was a rather perfect tableau to see the president standing with this nominee and his wife in this setting and presenting them as a kind of fait accompli. Isn't this perfect? What could be better? Let's just proceed to the confirmation. So, Ron, I have a question for you. I wasn't watching TV all day yesterday, but I gather that CNN kept taking pictures of Judge Tom Hardiman driving his way to Washington and gassing up. And at the, the sheets. Uh, and he that, stopped at a sheet somewhere in Pennsylvania, apparently. Uh, yes, and, he did. And that, and that I, I don't know this, but that the White House told him to come ahead to Washington. Now, if that's true, that is truly mean. And I think we have to say it is in one's imagination because we, we don't have a lot of confirmation on these reports. The White House never confirmed to me that they were going to have both men in Washington, D.C., it could just be that Thomas Hardiman went to get gas at Sheets and there was a producer tailing him. <laughs> Trump and, you know, the president did invite Senate Democrats to be at the White House tonight. He invited Senate, Senate Democratic come. leaders. He invited members of the Judiciary Committee. And they, as I was told to me, politely declined the invite, in part because they did not know who the nominee was going to be. And Senator Durbin of Illinois, I said, why aren't you going to go? And he said, you know, I don't want to be standing there when they pull back the curtain and reveal who the nominee is and suggest that, like, my support is implicit by being there. So Democrats were invited, but they chose not to go. Ted Cruz was there. Vice President Pence attended the Senate lunch today, and he invited the whole Senate Republican conference to come to the White House tonight and, for And it. why not, after all, since their votes are all being counted on? 
are members of Congress or members of the Senate usually clued in, briefed in some way yeah, on who it'll be? they usually are, but not till pretty late, because if you don't want to leak, you don't tell the Hill. <laughs> okay, in terms of how this is going to go, what, how does this play out? What's the timing like? What can we expect? And, and I know these are not normal times. So maybe what's it like in normal times and what could happen this time? Well, in normal times, you would have about a, I think it's a four or five week at minimum delay before there are hearings. And I suspect the Republicans will say, well, we have to fill this vacancy right away because we've got a... Oh, it's been a terribly long time that the court's been shorthanded. And so they'll say three weeks and the Democrats will go ballistic. So they'll do, then they'll agree on four weeks. Um, then there's a question of how many witnesses they're going to be for and against and who's it going to be and how long will each senator have to question and then they submit after the hearings they submit written questions and then there's more delay while they answer the written questions and more delay while more questions are submitted but it should not take more than about two months now that I have to say that gets you to uh, early April early April which might be enough time to get Justice Gorsuch there to the Supreme Court, assuming he's confirmed, for the last sitting of this Supreme Court term, which is in, in April. And that's uh, six, six days of argument. Uh, it's unlikely that that's going to, you know, it, that it's worth killing each other over, but they will. I can also tell you that in this process, the things I've heard from Senate Democrats early, the things we're going to hear a lot about in this confirmation process is both the cases that he's ruled on in the past. One of recent note is the Hobby Lobby case Mm -hmm. in which he sided uh, on the side of the Hobby Lobby and in the ruling. Nina, please feel free to correct my the way I describe this, but uh, that businesses have are entitled to religious exemptions for things like providing birth control, which was a very high profile case. um, And Democrats want to focus in on that, particularly because they want to focus on women's rights and abortion rights. And also the thing I heard a lot today was, again, the climate that we're in right now, Senate Democrats are already slow walking most of Trump's cabinet nominees. Those battles will take at least through the month of February. But I was told today, whoever the nominee was, it was before we knew it was Gorsuch, that they were going to really press this nominee on things like President Trump's executive orders, Mm -hmm. including the ones he put out on Friday affecting uh, refugees and immigration policy. So I think that that is going to be even more so than his past rulings, but what the president's doing now and how Gorsuch feels about those rulings now as Nina can also well tell you, these don't tend to be very illuminating. Yeah, I was about to say, do you really think he's going to answer these and, questions? And if, no. he is, uh, if he is as artful and articulate as he is believed to be, he probably is going to be an artful dodger of those questions, but those questions will be asked. I just want to make one point here. Um, the Democrats tried to filibuster Sam Alito, Justice Alito. They failed. They didn't have enough votes. Um And he was conservative. He is conservative. He is very conservative. Uh, So they didn't have the votes then, and they don't have the power now. But please look back at when the Democrats actually did control the Senate. And even then, there were five votes on the Republican side to confirm Elena Kagan. You know, a handful of votes on the Republican side. There were nine for Sotomayor, who should have been a no-brainer, the first Hispanic nominee, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The times are not what they once were when 
Antonin Scalia was all but crowned. He was the first Italian-American, and he was all but crowned, even though he didn't say anything in his confirmation hearing. He was more than an artful dodger. He was a charming artful dodger. Is it fair to say that prior to Bork, the Supreme Court nominations were generally, generally speaking, an opportunity for both sides to show their bipartisanship, to talk about qualifications, to be generous to the other party, to be generous to presidents of the other party, but that since Robert Bork was denied, the whole ballgame has changed, and that it has changed more yet in the last decade. And what year was that? The Bork? Bork. Was Bork 87. was 87. 87. 87. You, you'd have to say that, you know, Ginsburg was approved overwhelmingly. Yes. And so was Breyer, who was known to most Republicans because he'd been counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. And, and half the Democrats voted for... John Roberts to be chief justice. Half of them voted for that's John Roberts. Mean. That's what I mean. That um, kind of show of but we that's, are bipartisan. That's, that's long after Bork. Yes, but... That's 2005. But, but Alito... Then in the last 10 years, it has changed again. Yeah, but Alito was more of a pill than they felt like they wanted to swallow. And uh, they did anyway. And they did anyway because they didn't have the votes. Times have changed dramatically yet again. We may have thought that this was a terribly polarized society in 2005, but it was nothing compared to now. And a Trump presidency based on 12 days or 13 days is going to exacerbate that. And I don't see many Democrats voting for Supreme Court nominees by this president because they don't trust him. And they'll be under enormous pressure from their base. And on that note, I think we're done for now, but we're dragging you back in the studio, Nina, very soon. And in the meantime, as we've said, many of Donald Trump's cabinet picks are in the process of being confirmed by the Senate. And we will give you a full rundown of all of that news in our weekly roundup on Thursday evening. And we promise we won't say this too many more times, but tickets for our D.C. live show are almost sold. (laughs) Nina, don't laugh. She's been up a long time. I've got a lot to go, too. (laughs) And we promise we won't say this too many more times, but tickets for our D.C. live show Friday, February 10th. Go to nprpresents.org for tickets. They are almost gone. And, of course, keep up with our coverage on the NPR One app and on your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. And I'm Nina Totenberg. I cover the Supreme Court and the judiciary. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm -hmm.